Nina Tate. Tell me your real name. She looked down, stirred sugar into her tea. At last, she said, Patricia O'Neill. She met his gaze, daring him to laugh. He only nodded. Taking one of the buns, he bit into it and discreetly licked the sugar crystals from his lips. Nina, would you like to go to the pictures after this? He was eighteen, only months older than her. He was posh, like Jason, but not like him, because she guessed that the photographer had trained himself to talk as he did, whereas Bobby had been born to it. In the dark warmth of the cinema, she studied his profile as the lights from the screen alternately shadowed and illuminated his face. There was a perfect symmetry to his features. His hair was thick and dark, falling over his forehead so that from time to time he pushed it away from his eyes that were green as a cat's. His nose had been broken. There was a small bump on its bridge where it had mended, and she stared at it, wondering how anyone could have hurt him until he caught her eye and smiled. She looked away. On the screen, Fred Astaire danced his impossible steps and sang, If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where Harlem flits? Bobby leaned towards her, his mouth close to her ear. Softly and in tune he sang, Pouring on the Ritz, and a shiver ran down her spine. He lived in a room above Jason's studio. They lay on his bed, fully clothed, side by side like effigies on a tomb, his hand closed loosely over hers. An oil lamp cast shadows, but left the corners of the room in darkness so that she couldn't see the things he might possess. The bed was big enough to leave a decent space between them. She could sleep without touching him. She could pretend to be innocent, even though he had seen her naked but that had been an odd kind of nakedness. She hadn't given anything away. Daring herself to look at him, she turned her head on the fat feather pillows. He'd lit a cigarette, releasing tremulous rings of smoke into the dull yellow light. The silence between them made her feel safe and lazy, as though she need never talk again. As the smoke rings flattened against the ceiling, she imagined he could hear her heart beating. She wondered if he guessed she loved him, although she'd only realised it a moment ago, recognising what Jason must have seen, that they were the same, a matching pair like the Dresden Shepherd and Shepherdess and Father Mitchell's mantelpiece. It seemed immoral to love someone because they looked like you, and she thought of the orphanage nuns who had told her that only the soul was important, although in their pictures Christ was always exquisite, even in agony. He turned on his side and edged closer so that their noses almost touched. He said, I'm learning to fly, and at once she imagined wings sprouting from his narrow shoulders, heavy, immaculate wings, white as doves. He was Gabriel after all, grounded for a time. She smiled and he touched her mouth with his fingers. It's true. He was silent again, staring at the ceiling where it seemed the smoke rings had left indelible marks like halos. She believed she would sleep. Her limbs felt weighted to the bed. She would dream of smoke and flying. 
His hand squeezed hers. He said, I'd like to make love to you, but it won't mean anything. I don't want you to love me or think I might love you. Loyalty is what matters. She felt as she had when she'd allowed the Japanese robe to slip from her shoulders, a catch-your-breath mixture of fear and excitement that came from knowing she was as wicked as the nuns said she was. She wasn't disappointed that he disregarded love. She suspected men did, at first. She wondered about loyalty, deciding it was safe. He looked at her. She seemed very young, and all at once she felt powerful. She smiled, hiding it with her hand. You're shocked, he said. She stopped herself smiling and arranged her face into a suitable expression of seriousness. Lowering her hand from her mouth, she said,